you, I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Beerspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. Also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Uh, this weekend, we are, I'm excited to start this uh, new sermon series from the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is uh, God's uh, redemption story in the Old Testament. And it'll complement our other sermon series from the book of Romans. So whenever Pastor Henry speaks, he will be speaking from the book of Romans, and Exodus will serve as a, a parallel sermon series that will complement Romans through this ministry year. People familiar with the Bible know that the book of Exodus is about God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. The word Exodus means departure or going out. And the story of Exodus serves as a paradigm. It is a precursor to the Christian Exodus of how Jesus breaks free the enslaving power of sin in our life. You can call the book of Exodus the gospel according to Moses. A British Old Testament scholar, Alec Montier, says if you asked an Israelite in the Old Testament, who are you? This is how they would have responded to that question. They say, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death, in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Our mediator led us out, and we crossed over, and now we are on our way to the promised land. We're not there yet, but he's given us his law to make us a community, and his presence is in our midst, and he is going to stay with us until we get home. Alec Montier emphasizes, that's exactly what the Christian says, almost word for word. It's striking to see the parallels between the book of Exodus and the Gospels and the story in the New Testament. Exodus is not only about uh, deliverance from slavery, it is also about a transfer of allegiance. Uh, The bondage is broken, not so Israel can walk away free, but it's broken so that they may serve God. Like Israel, we are also saved from something for something. We're saved from our slavery to sin so we can bring our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ and live for his purposes. And the God who sets us free from our sin enters into a covenant with us today. He guarantees us his presence and walks with us while we are on our way to our promised land, the new heaven and earth. All through the New Testament, you will see echoes of salvation themes from Exodus that are being played out in so many places. In this action-packed Bible book, God reveals his name. He humbles Pharaoh. He institutes the Passover. He parts the Red Sea. He gives the Ten Commandments. And he dwells with his people through the building of the tabernacle. I'm excited to launch us into this new series as we work our way through the book of Exodus and apply it for our day and age. And we'll start off this weekend with uh, the first chapter, Exodus chapter 1. And if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word, Exodus chapter 1.
These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pitom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shepra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for the inspiration of the Bible. That the text that we read that is ancient and written centuries ago is still relevant and speaks to us with such clarity. It is only because you are the author of this book. So Lord, would you speak to us and personalize this message for us that our hearts will be ready and open and receptive to what you have to say. Commit this time to the leading of your spirit. Pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You all may be seated. Life has its ebbs and flows. We go through seasons of tranquility and peace. Everything is going well. We are coasting along, sailing on smooth seas. And out of the blue, the tide seems to change, leading to an avalanche of unexpected trials. They are sudden, unforeseen. They come out of nowhere, and it rocks our personal world. Now, for some of us, the smooth sailing was disrupted by the pandemic. And we're still reeling from all the losses that we have suffered over the last two years. 
Maybe you enjoyed good health all your life. And out of nowhere, now you've received an ominous health diagnosis. As some of you, your marriage was going well. And now, cracks have started to develop in your relationship and you feel so distant from your spouse. Now, others of you, you were climbing the corporate ladder. You were making great progress in your career. But now, all of a sudden, you feel you're stuck. You're not satisfied with work. You feel like you're not making a difference. In those moments in life, it is normal for us to question God. A question often asked in times of personal crisis is, God, where are you? Just read the book of Psalms, the worship manual of Israel, and you will see how many times the psalmist raises this very question about God's presence. In our head, we all know God is with us. But sometimes our experience, how you're feeling and sensing in that moment seems to communicate a different story. And at the time when you hit the lowest low, God feels so far a million miles away. And it is hard to read the Bible, hard to spend time in prayer. You can't feel his presence. You can't make sense of why he would allow all this in your life. And you're fighting to keep your faith alive. Now, that was the story of God's people as we begin the book of Exodus. In Genesis, we see, through a set of challenging circumstances, God made a way for Joseph to come to Egypt to prepare the way for the rest of his family. And a severe famine came. Joseph uses his influence in Egypt to bring his father, his siblings, and all of the extended family so they could come down to Egypt with him. And if Joseph had not been there, they all would have perished. Seventy of them make their way to this new land to start a new life. And life was good. They have God's favor as they settle down. Largely due to Joseph's accomplishments, they had the favor of Pharaoh and all of Egypt. Their shepherding business was thriving. There was biological multiplication, financial blessings. They were on a roll. You have to keep in mind, God's promise was to take them to the promised land. That was his covenant with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Egypt was supposed to be a temporary stop, not their permanent dwelling. Egypt was a detour, not their final destination. But somehow God's, God's people had assimilated to the Egyptian lifestyle, and they were pretty comfortable living there. It had become their permanent dwelling. And God was going to move them out of their comfort zone by making their life difficult. He would use circumstances that will unfold to once again align them back with his purposes. And the Israelites' world was rocked when unbeknownst to them, the circumstances started to change. A text says in Exodus 1 verse 8, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Now, all along, they were riding on Joseph's credentials. This man had saved the entire nation. He, he was a, seated at the right hand of Pharaoh, and all of Egypt looked up to Joseph. But now he's gone, 
A new Pharaoh comes into the scene. He didn't care much about history and all of Joseph's contribution. And this new Pharaoh looked at this immigrant people group with suspicion. Verses 9 and 10 of Exodus 1 says, Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the new Pharaoh basically saying, hey, wait a second, look at this people group. They're thriving in numbers, their population is exploding. We have to do something. If a war were to break out, they will switch sides and they will start fighting against us. So Pharaoh comes up with a plan. Verse 11 says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. The word used there, Oppress is a strong word. It portrays suffering in its raw form. It means to crush, press down, humiliate, to bring low. And that was the intent behind this forced labor, to dehumanize the Israelites. And they were suffering unbearably as they were forced to make bricks and build cities for Pharaoh. The text once again sheds light on their suffering in verse 14. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Working with brick and mortar in ancient Egypt was back-bending labor. It is common even today in some countries where such modern-day brick-making slavery still is a thriving business. The president of International Justice Mission, Gary Hogan, writes, brick-making operations are big businesses in several developing countries. These factories have walls that are eight feet high. The surrounding is dark and dusty. It is excruciatingly hot, dirty, Workers will be covered with charcoal dust and their skin is always sweat-soaked and begins to harden and crack. And today, all day long, these slaves perform the back-breaking labor of packing wet clay and straw into molds that form the bricks. Other workers, usually children, will carry these bricks on their head to dry them in the sun. And once they are dried, they bring them back again to be baked in the fire. Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they work with no relief in sight. Now that insight from Gary Hogan of modern-day Slavery and on this brick-making industry gives us a little window of what the Israelites would have gone through centuries earlier. Every day was the same. They toiled hard, faced the onslaught of brutal, ruthless taskmasters. And at this time, the Israelites wondered, God, where are you? Whatever happened to your promises that you made to our ancestors, why are all these things happening to us? 
And if that was not enough, Pharaoh passed an edict that all male babies ought to be killed. Leave the female, they're not much of a threat, but target the boys lest they turn into young men who will revolt against the empire. Now that was a direct attack on God's promise to bless and multiply his people. And now those promises looked far-fetched. If there was a time God felt so far, this was it. It looked like he's gone on a long vacation when all hell was breaking loose. Have you been there? I want you to know God doesn't take a holiday. In the midst of all that was happening at the time, God was still at work. He was there right with his people and unfolding his plans and purposes. And at that time, there were some things that the Israelites needed to know in order to make sense of their experience, to keep them grounded, even though they were feeling that the presence of God was far. And those very things help us today when we question God's presence in our life and when all hell seems to break loose in our daily experience. Here's the first thing. Hard times don't erase God's promises. Hard times don't erase God's promises. At times were hard for the Israelites, but that did not nullify the promises of God. But what was God's promise? Before Jacob left the promised land of Canaan to go down to Egypt to meet with Joseph, he heard God's voice distinctly. And this is what God said to Jacob in Genesis 46, verses 3 and 4. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. Now, when Jacob was not sure if he was doing the right thing by leaving Canaan and going down to Egypt, he hears the distinct voice of God and receives this promise of assurance that God himself will go down with them to Egypt, and he will form them into a big nation while they were in Egypt, and he will bring them back to the promised land. The book of Exodus is a proof that when God promises something, he doesn't lack the power or resources to bring it to pass. His word will indeed come true. We see the unfolding of this promise in the text in verses 6 and 7. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, while the Israelites thought that God had forgotten his promise, God was fulfilling his plans and purposes. He was blessing them and multiplying them and forming them into a nation. Now, think about it. When they came down to Egypt, they were 70 in number. But through these hardships, they did not disintegrate. 
Their numbers did not shrink. They thrived in numbers just as God had promised. They were being supernaturally preserved. Let me show you an interesting contrast in the text in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Do you see the contrast? A despot, a maniac ruler, the one who thought he was all-powerful, is bent on stopping Israel's population growth. He's doing everything in his craftiness and power to reduce their numbers. But all of Pharaoh's efforts proves to be counterproductive, creating the exact opposite effect. For the more Pharaoh tried to crush the people, the more they multiplied in numbers. All of these deceitful tactics could not frustrate God's plan for his people. And that, I tell you, is true today. If you are a child of God, walking in God's will, whether it is satanic or human opposition, the more they try to oppress you, the more they try to afflict you and beat you down, God will not only nullify their efforts, but it will produce the opposite effect and work to your advantage. Hard times don't erase God's promises. And secondly, while the Israelites were wondering, where is God? God was at work in unlikely places. God was at work in unlikely places. Now, the Israelites may not have seen God at work where they wanted, but he was at work in places that they least expected. We see in the text, Pharaoh is going after the male Israelite babies because he saw them as the threat. These babies will not be cured forever. One day they will become young men and they will fight and revolt against Egypt. So seeing what could potentially happen, Pharaoh wants to get rid of them. But he doesn't see the female babies as a threat. Yet in this chapter and the next chapter, Exodus 2, who is going to counter Pharaoh's plans? Five females. There's the two midwives here in Exodus 1. Then there is Moses' mother, Moses' sister, and Pharaoh's own daughter. All five of them will play a crucial role in the unfolding of God's plans. And do you want to know something fascinating? The book of Exodus just uses the term Pharaoh, and it does not identify the Pharaohs by name. A Pharaoh is a title like king. And this has led to confusion among Bible scholars. So who was the Pharaoh who was in power when the Israelites are being oppressed? We don't know. The text doesn't mention that. And guess whose name is mentioned? Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua. Shipra and Pua, two Hebrew names. Shipra means beautiful one, and Pua means splendid one. The lowly midwives are recognized by their names, while Pharaoh, who was seen as a god in all of Egypt, is left unidentified. That tells you a little bit of who God thinks is more important. 
Now, I want to take a, a brief segue to address a pertinent issue that has been on the news for the last two weeks. And our scripture text has something significant to say on this serious topic, the overturning of uh, Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court in the United States and the Christian perspective on the subject of abortion. The two midwives in our text did not fulfill Pharaoh's edict because they believed in the sanctity of human life. They could not take the life of a baby, so they defied Pharaoh's orders. The Bible is clear. All of life is sacred and precious to God, both in the womb and outside the womb. All babies, born and unborn, are created by God and made in His image. They are knitted together in their mother's womb by our Creator God. Psalm 139 makes it so clear when it says in verses 13 and 14, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. So that is clearly established in the Bible. And the Bible also teaches that our bodies belong to God. The philosophy of my body, my rights, that I can do whatever I want, defies God and our accountability as human beings to God our Creator. And we've heard heated debates over the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the United States, and you may wonder, what is the Christian response to all of this? As Christians, we humbly affirm the U.S. Supreme Court's decision. And many godly people have been praying for laws that would preserve life and uphold the sanctity of life. And as Christians, we celebrate legislation that honors and respects the sacredness of life. Now, we don't go on a victory lap to offend those who disagree with us or mock those with opposing views in their face. That's not how we celebrate. We rather pause to genuinely give praise to God for precious, innocent lives that will be saved as a result of this landmark decision and that God-given life will be held in higher regard. See, as Christians, we're called to speak for the rights of the unborn. But we don't stop with mere speech. We have to demonstrate compassion and grace, reach out to support women who feel like they have no other options, and surround them with love and care. And that is why we as a church have supported the Calgary Pregnancy Care Center for over 30 years because of the, yeah, an excellent organization for the work that they've been doing in providing women with alternatives to abortion and walking with them and providing support during a crisis pregnancy and also post-abortion care, grief support, and Bible-based counseling. When you talk about a topic like this, this is very important that we address this issue. I want to address those who are 
struggling with guilt because you had an abortion. You're being tormented with deep regrets. Hear me. You may have had an abortion, but that doesn't change the fact that God loves you. And just know that when we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ, God forgives us of all of our sins, including abortion, and will not hold them against us. That is the miracle of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that we all affirm and celebrate. So you don't have to live in guilt because of something that you've done, that you terminated your pregnancy. Instead, receive the healing and the forgiveness that only Jesus can bring. And reach out to us if you're hurting. As a church, we will help you, we will walk with you, and we will guide you to find resources and support that you need. And be assured that you will be loved, cared for, not seen with judgment, no condemnation or shame will be heaped on you. You will be showered with love and grace just as the Bible teaches us to. And lastly, as I wrap up this issue, as Christians, we need to pray for our nation of Canada, for our cultural values are drifting far from God, and that is alarming. When we hear our Canadian politicians and media calling the overturning of Roe versus Wade horrific, we as Christ followers grieve. Abortion access in Canada is some of the freest in the world. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada claims over 100,000 abortions are carried out each year in Canada. So as Christian believers, we pray for the gospel to penetrate the hearts of our fellow Canadians. And more than codes being involved and laws being changed, we want to see Jesus transform the hearts of our fellow Canadians. Not only should abortion be illegal as per our laws, but more importantly, it should be unthinkable in our minds and our hearts because of the change in our conscience. And only Jesus can bring about that deep-rooted transformation. Going back to the book of Exodus, God was at work in the midst of the oppression through unlikely people, and his power was displayed in unlikely places. And sometimes in our own suffering, we can be so self-absorbed, but we need to open our eyes and see where God is at work and find encouragement. And chances are, he may be at work in places that we least expect. Exodus also tells us that while the Israelites were wondering where God was, they also cried out to him. And here's the third thing that we need to do. When we are questioning God's presence in our life, when it all falls apart, cry out to God. When it all falls apart, cry out to God. Exodus 2.23, it says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died 
the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And our Christian faith gives us the freedom to wrestle with our doubts. We're not a stoic faith. We don't have to bite our lips and just endure all our disappointments. We don't have to be happy and smiley all the time. A mature faith doesn't necessarily mean we are always euphoric. In hard seasons, when we don't understand what is happening, when we don't feel the presence of God, we don't have to fake it or pretend everything is okay. We have the permission to be honest. When things are hard, when life is tough, we can express our struggles. But we do so in community with people who are not judgmental, those who don't just give us pat answers, but who sympathize with us, who weep with us, who give us a shoulder to cry. But whatever you may be going through, do not let your suffering come between you and God. Don't let it separate you from him and take you farther from his purposes for your life. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, once said, it doesn't matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or presses you nearer to his heart. So where does the pressure lie in your life? Are your problems coming between you and God and creating a wedge in your relationship? Or are they driving you closer and closer to the heart of Jesus? And may the difficult times be those times when we lean all the more on the everlasting arms of Jesus and find that He is reliable and trustworthy and will carry us through. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward and lead us in a closing song. And we can all stand up at this time. There are some of you here, you're going through a difficult season in your life walking through a valley and you don't know where God is in the midst of all of this and I want to remind you especially hard times don't erase God's promises God is at work in unlikely places and when it all falls apart in your life cry out to him because he is open to your Christ